What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Neil Fallon, founding member, vocalist, and songwriter of the band Clutch. Clutch is a fantastic band. If you have never seen one of their ripping and captivating live shows, I highly recommend you check them out. Now, at Hardcore Humanism, our goal is to help you apply some of the core principles of humanistic psychology so that you can break through the barriers that you face in your life, find your purpose, and work hard to achieve it. And one of the most important things that we can do to nurture a purpose-driven life is to build a culture around us that supports our hopes, our dreams, our vision of who we are and what we want to achieve. And in the world of music, that often means being in a band with like-minded people and building a fan base. And not only has Clutch retained the same band members for 30 years, but they have built one of the most passionate and devoted fan bases I personally have ever seen. I mean, when people talk about Clutch, it goes way beyond music. They talk about Clutch as the soundtrack of their lives. They remember important moments in their lives as they relate to Clutch albums and shows. Now, oftentimes, we don't necessarily build a culture around ourselves intentionally or consciously. But I wanted to talk with Neil so that during the conversation, we could piece together his best understanding of how he and the other members of Clutch have built such a powerful culture that supports their purpose of making great music and putting on amazing live shows. And the hope is that we can learn from Neil in order to better understand how to find our own purpose and build a supportive culture around ourselves in our own lives. So let's listen to what Neil has to say. All right, Neil, welcome to the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, there's so many people who try to build a brand and try to, whether it's a creative product or an innovative product or whatever it is, and they they try to connect with an audience of some kind, like fans, customers, whatever it is. And you guys seem to have the magic. And I would love to talk about that if that is cool with you. I'll do my best. (laughs) So let's just stipulate that. The truth of the matter is, is that we probably, you know, p- people don't like music because of like a specific thing. It's it's much more holistic. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, it's kind of like loving your spouse. Like it's, it's not, you, you can break it down, but it's just like, you just kind of do. So I recognize that this exercise is going to be incomplete, but would you agree at, at, and, and you don't have to be feel, you know, you don't have to be modest about this, that there is something kind of unique about the fervor of clutch fans? I, I would. And, you know, it's, I've, it's always hard for me to comment on because, you know, I've been to every single clutch show, but I've never seen clutch in the capacity that they have. And I've never listened to clutch in the same way, like a song done out of the box. I'm so in my, over my head with it. It's hard to be objective about it. Um, if I had, you know, I'll throw a couple of things at you and you can respond to whichever one you think is most interesting or none at all. But uh, I think there's some parallels that I've I've kind of thought about over the years with us in Rush in some ways. Um, Rush, we may be very musically different in the spectrum of rock and roll, but there's a, there's a sense, and I heard Getty Lee say this, or I think it was Getty Lee, that Rush fans have a sense of ownership in the band, almost like they're shareholders, emotional shareholders. Sure, Rush has had hits. Uh, we've had a couple of things that might have remotely resembled a hit, but not in, you know, played on radio or anything like that. And I think because of that, it took a lot longer to build up a fan base, mostly because word of mouth 
And I've said this before in other interviews, I think one of the worst things that can happen to any artist or band is a huge hit right out of the gates. More often than not, it destroys a band because they, the bar gets so high and then they want to meet that. And more often than not, they never do. But with us, it's been a, it's been a marathon and not a sprint. And our fans have kind of been along for the ride. I mean, I've seen people that have met and married people that they met at clutch shows and now bring their kids. And that's, it's pretty gratifying. And I think sincerity too. I, I think what you see is what you get. I would hope that that honesty is what a lot of people latch on to. Now, it's interesting that you said that, and it's kind of strange because I, I literally just watched the Rush documentary on Netflix, and I, I was I was stunned at how wildly boring in an appealing way it was. <laughs> there was there was so little drama, yeah, and the only drama were basically like physical health issues that had nothing to do with the band itself, like the original drummer being sick and, you know, unfortunately, uh, Neil Peart's family issues that happened there. And what was so interesting about it, it's interesting that you say this, this, um, this comparison, because one of the things that I really felt like when I saw you guys live and this, I think now that you're saying it, Rush does this as well. Rush never seems to lose sight of the importance of the moment. Mm. It's like they can go do all these different experiments. They can they can try all these different permutations, but there there doesn't ever seem to be a loss of how important this moment is for the fan. And I feel as though you guys had that. Like sometimes like there's a lot of humor in your music and there's a lot of like, you know, you I think your stage show is 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 you know, is great and kind of out there a little bit, but there's never a moment where it's anything but serious about the performance. Well, well, thank you for saying that. We certainly do try that. I mean, there was, <clears throat> I think early on and, you know, speaking for myself in our career, I didn't take it as seriously because I was so young and being young, you take pretty much everything for granted. But later on, as I realized that, you know, what we have is a very special thing. You know, these four dudes from high school have somehow made it five years and then 10 years and then 15. And now we're, we're staring down 30. Uh, but one thing that's been consistent, you know, despite being dropped from record labels or having, you know, very mild drama, you know, probably Rush-esque dramas, is that it was the music, primarily the st on stage. I'll wax philosophical for a moment, but live music is, and I think I've said this before, I may even said in our previous interview that it's been around for hundreds of thousands of years. And it's sort of like a, when you participate with people in the live music experience, whether just as a listener or performer or both, usually, it's a, it's sort of a, a human sacrament because it's a transient thing. And when all your brains and your bodies kind of sync up and then it's gone, it's a very beautiful thing. One of the things that is very interesting to me, and this gets back to this idea of, of why you know, your fans are so loyal, is that, you know, when I, I, I didn't grow up as a hardcore kid, you know, I, I grew up listening to, you know, fairly conventional music. And if, you know, if you, if you consider the Scorpions metal, then, you know, I, and Led Zeppelin metal, then I, then I listened sure. to metal, but you know, yeah. it was, it really never went farther than that. And I certainly like, I mean, I, I, other than dancing at bar mitzvahs to, I want to be sedated and like, you know, thinking, you know, I thought, I thought like, you know, Edgy. you know, 
Yeah. You know, I didn't grow up with any of this when it was dangerous. You know what I mean? Like hardcore when it was dangerous. I think a lot of people went through a lot of bad stuff just to get to a hardcore or a metal show. And the fact that you guys were willing to do that, I'm sure you'll have that like forever. It was a good character building exercise, especially on your first tours when you're going to cities, you don't know. You don't know the people there. You don't know the dynamic. Um, and I've actually brought this up with a friend the other day, back in you know the 80s when it was like skinheads and long hairs were like mortal enemies. Like if you went to the show with the wrong kind of haircut, then you might be leaving with a broken nose, which in hindsight is ridiculous. It was very segregated in a lot of ways. There was particular types of hardcore. There was particular types of punk rock. And I think it's because it was very insular. And it was also... You had to try harder to get into it. You had to know what record store would carry that record that you were looking for. And then you would have to decide, okay, I have 20 bucks. Am I going to buy one record? Am I going to buy three, seven inches? And that was it. There wasn't the embarrassment of riches that we have today. And I'm, hey, I'm all for it. I mean, I've discovered great music because all these doors got kicked down, but there was a sense of exclusivity to it. There was the kid who had the, the patches on his jacket of bands you'd never heard of. And you wanted to find out more. And it's very intriguing. And also nightclubs, going back to what you said, if it were the kind of club that did punk rock or hardcore, more often than not, it was not in the greatest part of town. There was a very famous club uh, in D.C. called the Safari Club. And one of the cool things that happened there is on weekends, they would do hardcore matinees from like 12 to 4. And usually not the line was just a bunch of white teenage boys from the suburbs for the majority that came in to see this this hardcore band. And then as that show was leaving, the DC Go-Go bands would be loading in their gear. So there was a real tangible crossover. Uh, not that that was dangerous. It was actually a very fertile thing because you suddenly were interacting with musicians from a different scene, hearing their music, uh, seeing how they did their thing. The, the risks of getting out of your comfort zone often came with rewards. I think that not not as many people are familiar with the DC go-go scene and how important that was to the city. And I, and I don't know that a lot of, I mean, I'm sure your hardcore fans know, but people maybe looking from the outside wouldn't an, immediately say, oh, I see the go-go influence in Clutch. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of curious what, just how you would explain the DC go-go scene and like sort of whether thematically or musically, like how that influenced you guys. I'd be very curious to know that. Well, DC Go-Go, as we know it, is everyone looks to Chuck Brown as the, as the godfather of the Go-Go. He basically invented a genre, sort of like James Brown invented that funk. And he started as an R- R&B guitar player. And then he started in- introducing this Afro-Cuban per- percussion, which when you think of DC, I mean, that's not the first thing that maybe comes to mind. You maybe might think Miami or something like that, but... No, that was a thing. And then it developed. All these other bands started mimicking that. And what they would do is in order to keep patrons in clubs for as long as possible, they would just play for three hours straight. I think one of the reasons Go-Go never really left the region too much is because the songs are too long to be played on the radio. It's a kind of a practical thing. There was a couple hits and it got sampled a lot, and particularly in the 80s. There's tons of Go-Go samples on 80s hip hop. Growing up in the 80s in the greater D.C. area, you heard it everywhere. You heard it on the radio. They're, I mean, they play it late at night. You heard it. The football marching bands are playing it. You hear it in people's cars at the intersections. The kids are banging on the lockers, the go-go beats. 
And JP was in the marching band at our high school. So naturally he learned those beats too. And sometimes <clears throat> I don't think it's that much of a leap to go from go-go to, to he heavy hard rock. Because I think of like Black Sabbath, they were a blues band before they were Black Sabbath. And Tony Iommi's probably very close to age that Chuck Brown was. They probably grew up listening to a lot of the same records and they just branched off in two ways. And then it's very easy to reintroduce that. You know, the other thing that I'm hearing that you're saying on a thematic level is that I remember I read this review where, where Lester Bang said that hardcore is the womb you know, talking about like just the, the immersion that happens at a hardcore show. And when you're talking about playing for three hours, I, I kind of wonder whether or not a go-go show has that same immersive feel, which in some ways it almost transcends the style. It's just that idea that you can just get like wrapped up in, in a show. I'm, I'm sure it was. I mean, I've, I've only seen a handful of go-go bands, but, but never really in like a, go-go nightclub i've seen them at, at at events outside or what have you actually we did perform with rare essence the uh, year before last that was awesome but there's this weird thing that happens when music that you really lose yourself into is time your sense of time disappears it seems that when you're in the middle of it like it's all you've ever known and all you never will and when it's over you're like wait did that was you know an hour and a half it felt like five minutes uh I'm sure there's a psychology to that when you've, when you've suddenly lost thought of uh, everything else in your life, your, your worries, your, your concerns about tomorrow. Music has this ability to just erase that chalkboard for the duration of the performance. The term that they use is flow. And I think that for that exact that that's literally the definition of flow is that you you get caught up in what you're doing and so immersed in it that that one of the defining characteristics is that time is no longer uh something that you're aware of and there's so many there's so many different ways that people try to get there i think one of the biggest mistakes people make is that oh like there's only one way to get into flow you know people say oh you have to meditate you know, but there's like people who do exercise, people who do music, there's people who draw, you know, there's reading. I mean, there's so many different ways and like knowing how to, how to get that and like what the right way of getting into flow for you is so important. But what you're talking about, I think for a lot of people, the music is definitely one of the ways. And if you find someone who can hold your attention like that and you lose yourself, I mean, that that's worth so much in a life where, man, <laughs> sometimes you just need to lose yourself a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I've, I often think about the creative process or the performing process and how to make it better or easier. There's no one right way. You can spend your lifetime figuring that out. But I'll find if I'm writing, you know, I have to listen to instrumental music. I can't listen to music with lyrics in it because then I'm I'm listening to that. And performing sometimes, sometimes it's an uphill battle. But I find if I'm worried about the performance, thinking, looking at it right up until it, it's impossible to get into a flow. But if I'm talking to somebody about something completely unrelated, and then you just glide, glide right into it, and then it's over and done with before you know it. it it's got that that vibe of the idea of like those hardcore shows where you know the people are in the audience and then just kind of show up on on stage, you know, like they were in the audience a few minutes ago and now they're they're on stage and then they go back into the audience. 
it's that that kind of concept of like it's all one connected experience as opposed to this very sort of like specific and discrete you know now you're a person now you're a rock star it's like mm-hmm. you know you're kind of you the whole time and i think like that sometimes that can that can help you get into that a little bit more that flow state i think so and also I mean, because rock and roll, it became like institutionalized with a lot of things, you know, how, what you do when you get to the show, how you behave. Okay. Here's a barricade now. And, you know, there's backstage and there's this and that. And now it's even getting more complicated with things like VIP areas or, you know, pre-show meet and greets. And at the end of the day, it's still about the music. Um, You know, all these things are, you know, that's, that's the business side of, of music, which I kind of have a big line that i draw in between the two because what you're saying about like hardcore shows that was sort of like it was a community experience you always heard hardcore songs about the kids and the scene and it was kind of breaking down and i mean punk rock did this too breaking down the institutional norms of rock and roll performances in a healthy way and it's easier to to get into a flow when you're with people who are also trying to do that sort of like a mob psychology in a way. Now, I want to transition a little bit to that business end because everything you're talking about as far as from an art perspective, from a cultural perspective, it all makes sense. Like, you know, I hear what you're saying, like there's a line with the business, but you you still have to choose the the people that you're connected with, the people who represent you, the way that you interact with fans. Like, is is there anything that you were aware of that you either did or didn't do where it, whether it, even if you didn't intentionally do it, but now in retrospect, you're like, oh yeah, I, I kind of in retrospect realized I did this or we didn't do this. And it, it helped that connection. You know, if people were going to learn from, from your experience, like, okay, these are, these are ways of building loyalty in people. Be nice to people. <laughs> that's a, that's a big thing because um, you know, Ozzy Osbourne says something very, you know, smart in the decline of Western civilization part two, when he's sitting there scrambling eggs in his bathrobe and he says something to the effect of be nice to people on your way up. Cause you'll meet them on the way down. I think you can go further with that. It's not just about a career trajectory. It's just about life is easier when you're nice. And when you're constantly trying to be antagonistic, like we're showing up at the club and we're going to do our sound check now. And if you like it, well, screw you. It's way easier to act like water and, and get things done. Cause it's, there's more to just the band at that point. You've got the local crew. Uh, you've got other bands. As far as the business side, I mean, you have to be able to take missteps and then learn from them. Uh, you have to. And I think it's in anything in life. You know, we've made mistakes. We've, you know, worked with people we shouldn't have worked with. As far as like crew goes, briefly learn from that. When we got dropped from labels, we didn't really see that as a death knell. We saw that as an opportunity to try something new again. That's something we wrestled with quite a bit is because do we want to do it DIY like Ian? Or here's this manager guy that we have, one of our first was like, well, come to New York because opportunity only knocks once and wrestling with those two things, which one is going to work for us? We ended up doing both. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting that that Bruce Lee be like water concept. Cause you know, I, and when I'm, when I'm working with people, I, I think one of the things that I'll say to them is the, the kindness. I always say like, kind of focus on love, like love, you know, love yourself, love what you're doing, love what's in front of you and be willing to accept love 
coming in, which which may seem kind of a little bit like hippy dippy and stuff, but if you really kind of think about it, it makes things much more simple. And then like you maneuver just to where the love seems to flow the strongest, you know what I mean? And where each each way. So many people they get angry and whatever. And it's like, you know, think about what you're saying. It's like, look, I'm, I'm just being kind. And I'm I'm kind of happy to accept the the fans and the love and the loyalty. And then we're just going to maneuver based on like the labels or the crew or whatever. It, it makes it so much more simple because people really, really get themselves into a, a problem space and they lose sight of that central concept. Like, what are you doing it for? You know, it's like, in theory, you love the music and you love the people who love it. And it's like, if, if you lose sight of that simplicity, what you're talking about kindness, man, you just, you just, you just get lost. Yeah, you do because it's a, you tie yourself in tighter knots and then you, you introduce more distractions, whether, you know, any job usually or anything that you love, you know, what, when you're making something is usually very simple. It might have a lot of moving parts, but the, the core idea is usually very simple. Uh, music, hard rock, heavy metal, hardcore. There's a lot of misplaced masculine energy, for lack of a better word. You know, there's a lot of who's the tough guy. And, at, you know, for years, I was like, I, want, I better be a tough guy like these guys because I'm going to, but I'm not that dude. And it took me a while to let go of that. I mean, you listen to the first seven inch, the first album, first LP, Transnet, there's a lot of anger in there. And once I started doing those shows, you know, doing those songs, like, man, I'm going to get exhausted by doing this in, in a year's time. Then I kind of let that go and started having fun with it and realizing it's easier to get on stage smiling than it is scowling. That's exhausting. It really is. Well, and you know, it's interesting because one of the things that that I've always been fascinated about and and not and you know, this is as a as an outsider to some extent an ally, you know, because I feel like if you're not deep within a scene, it's it's to critique it I think is wrong, but I've always been kind of curious about you know, you get you get people who are are coming together to express individuality you know, and to express like the sense that, that they're not maybe intentionally rejecting, but they're at least willing to ignore a more conventional world that tells them how to be. And then to go within that system and then create the exact same rigid structures. It's, I think it's, it's more of a cautionary tale of how, how quickly something like that can happen. All of a sudden you just lost the whole, the whole heart of, of what was happening. You know, like if you're not allowed to be happy, yeah. It's sort of like, well, that doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. It's, you became the thing you thought you were fighting against. It's, it's easy to do. I think, um, I see a lot of mis miserable people sometimes, you know, on tour and, you know, it's tough. It can be exhausting. You, you, you haven't showered, you miss your family, the place it hasn't been cleaned up from the night before. And there's somebody banging on a snare drum, you know, about a foot from your head. It can be exhausting and it's easy to get angry when you're grinding it out week after week after week. But kind of going back to what we said earlier, it's about the show. Got to remember that at the end of the day, you're 90 minutes on stage. There might be that kid who's seeing you for the first time. You get one chance to make him or her want to come back again. It's, it's, uh, it's now or never. So th those distractions you know, anger or, or the snare drum, what have you, they got to, got to get rid of them. 
And I was just a couple of years ago, that, that very late forties kid <laughs> got chance. And, and can I tell you, it was interesting because I did feel like you guys were enjoying it. Like it was like, I, I, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know what you guys are actually feeling, but that's another piece of it because sometimes I'll see, I'll see people on stage and I'm looking and I'm like, are you happy to be there? Or cause like, do you even want to be there? And like, sometimes that's a persona, but sometimes it's just like, no, no, no. They, they seem like they're miserable being here. Not that I don't begrudge anybody that people are allowed to feel the way that they're feeling, but you know, getting back to that thing about the kindness, like you need to connect to that love. If you find yourself, that love is getting squashed out. It's like, take a step back and sort of be like, all right, what's happening here. Even if you love to, you know, feeling badly, because a lot of great records come from pain, but in some ways, it's got to be something that's really working for you. And if it's not, man, it's, I can imagine that just being a very, very rough life. You know, I mean, it's a rough life. It sounds like anyway with with touring. But if you're not loving being up there, ugh, it's brutal. The thing about touring, it's like, and I've, other musicians I've heard say this, it's like the 90 minutes you're on stage is amazing. It's the other 22 and a half hours that are a grind. But I look at it, it's like I'm at a point in my life where I'm actually making a living in the creative arts. What? That's awesome. Because I was the creative arts kid in high school to think that you could do that. You kind of was, were told in so many words, mm, probably not. It's going to be a hobby. Uh, and I know a lot of folks that have to reserve their passions to hobbies and yeah. squeeze it in on the weekend. Maybe, maybe. Uh, and then one day the, the oil paint goes into a box and it never comes back out. And that's sad. Uh, so I'm, I feel very grateful and very fortunate that I get to do this. And we've surrounded ourselves with really good people because it's more than just the band. It's the crew, the people we work with, and our fans. And I, I meant to mention one thing, you know, you were, you were talking about just like energy, like if you wanted to be there. There's a, it took me a long time to get over this, but Walking out on stage, more often than not, opening for a big band. We were the opening band a lot, still are. And you could see a sea of people. And then there'll be that one dude right in the middle giving you the finger or saying, get off the stage or you suck. Suddenly, he becomes the only person in the audience. The hundred other people or the thousand other people having a great time evaporate. And it's really easy to focus on that energy because it's louder. And you, I think there's an animal instinct to want to like snap back at it. And it took me a long time to flip that around and make that person evaporate and see the sea of people that are having a good time that took time out of their day, spent money, drove there, and they, they want to have a good time. And so should you. So for, forget you, Mr. You know, grouchy pants. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, I just feel thankful that I've been able to make music with the same group of friends for this many years and got to see the world meet people in other countries that I thought I'd never go to. It's a, it's a great thing, which makes the, you know, this, this past year, very kind of excruciating, but it's also what I th thought I already appreciated. I realized I have like a new depth of appreciation for so many things. Well, listen, it, it's great talking to you again. I was so psyched to hear about the legend and then seeing you guys live. I got it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to getting this content live so that, you know, help other people <laughs> understand yeah. the well, mystery, the mystery of the power of clutch. <laughs> well, so, we appreciate it. 
All right. We'll look forward to talking with you again soon. Uh, yeah. Give me a holler anytime. So there you have it. Neil Fallon of Clutch sharing his understanding of how Clutch has developed such a passionate and loyal following, a culture that supports the band's purpose to make great music and play amazing live shows. Now, there are a lot of great things to take away from the discussion with Neil. One of the concepts that he discusses is the idea of Clutch fans being emotional shareholders in the band. I really love this concept because it speaks to the kind of culture that many of us want in our lives. We want people to not just support us dispassionately and from a distance. We want emotional shareholders, people who are invested in who we are and what we do, just as we are invested in them. If you'll notice from the discussion, when Clutch started out, the results weren't immediate. They didn't start playing out to huge crowds, but they kept at it and they kept going. They continued to be committed to each other, their music, and their fans, regardless of whether or not they were signed to a label, what label they were on, or whether they had more mainstream popularity at a given time. And being on that journey together, the band members and fans developed a connection and a sense of loyalty. And so when we are pursuing our own purpose, we can remember to focus our energy on finding, connecting with, and surrounding ourselves with like-minded and supportive people with whom we can share our journey, our struggles, and triumphs. And through this continued sharing and moving forward, we can nurture loyalty and the sense of being an emotional shareholder in the people around us that will help us sustain a purpose-driven life. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear in the podcast, go to our website and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time. <laughs>